There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Mark Boris and welcome to The Mentor. Inefficiency drives Richard Joff nuts. He's always looking for dumb cracks in the system and he's prepared to take risks to come up with a solution. It's just as well because recently he's entered an industry that typically doesn't excite a lot of people, home insurance. Now, customers don't hear from their insurance provider until it's time for renewal or when your roof collapses. It just doesn't sit right with him that insurers are happy to take your money for the possibility that you might get service from them one day. So he launched an insurance tech company called Honey in late 2020. It also raised the largest seed round in Australia for a tech company coming in at $15.5 million. Honey attracted big names like Afterpay co-founder and CEO Anthony Eisen and a previous guest and CEO of Airtasker, Tim Fung. So let's find out what all the fuss is all about. Rich and I chat about why you need to be specific with who you get your advice from, when is the right time to set aside your ego in the name of your business and why so many of us obsess with the downside of risk and rarely consider the upside. So let's get into it. Richard Joff, welcome to The Mentor. Hi, nice to see you, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me. I think you and I maybe met up two years ago. I'm not sure now, uh, pre-COVID. Yeah, it's about right. When I first moved to Australia, two, two and a half years ago, you were one yeah, of my yeah. early customers where I was trying to figure out what to do, which we'll talk about. But uh, Yeah, totally. Uh <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's been a fairly long journey for you over the last couple of years and it's fair to say that um, you've had just about everything thrown in front of you to trip you up and you've finally got there. But let's go, let's, let's move back a little bit, Tom. Um, so you're from North, North America. That's right, exactly. Canada. <laughs> you're Canadian, which, uh, you're not a US. Yeah, so I moved. So I, I actually was born in South Africa uh, and moved when I was about 12 to Canada. Uh, and I kind of moved to Toronto and I was in a very small little community with a lot of other South Africans, um, in that same crowd. I think we were all, we all had a similar wiring. So we kind of fed off each other candidly, but I think we're all kind of scrappy immigrants trying to figure things out even in high school. Uh, so everyone was kind of doing deals and starting things and trying to, trying to find their way. Yeah. My parents, my dad's an entrepreneur and, and I kind of grew up in that that kind of environment, right? You learn so much, I think, through osmosis. We have a South African community here in Australia too. I guess when you're South African and you leave a country like South Africa, a lot of families over there accumulate a lot of things and a good lifestyle, relatively speaking. But yeah. 
largely they had to leave everything behind and had to come to wherever they've come to, like in some cases Australia or in your case Canada. It was very hard to get your wealth out of South Africa many years ago and bring it yeah. across. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it depends on what – there were different waves of South Africans that kind of left depending on candidly how much foresight you had, I think. But um, there were different waves and, and as you got later in that process, I think it became progressively harder, you know, to take out – I mean, your money was worth less. It was harder to get out. And, you know, South Africa is just a breathtakingly beautiful place, right? There's very few places in the world where the food is just extraordinary and you grow up in the mountains and the oceans. And, and so you grew up in Nirvana. And I think like a lot of people, like the people that left South Africa for the most part didn't want to leave, right? You weren't leaving like a war zone or, or leaving for economic reasons. You were leaving because, you know, you, you were concerned about the future of the country and, and you look around. My grandparents were from Zimbabwe, for example. And before that, we had family from all over the place. So, you know, you kind of watch as each country slowly falls apart. And you say to yourself, if you have young kids, you know, do you want your kids going to the army or fighting for this? Do you, you know, is this something that you really want to risk it all for? Right. And I think a lot of people, you know, either were touched by violence, like my dad was nearly killed, actually, when I was 11. So, you know, so you either touched by violence and, and you're on a plane like we were in eight or 10 weeks. My parents just said, look, we don't we don't want to have to deal with this anymore where, you know, you're working your whole lives and imagine you in five restaurants and then suddenly you have half the wealth you did than, than six months ago because the government did something stupid, right? And I think just being in an environment with constant ambiguity, almost death by a thousand cuts, right? You're watching a country in the decline, whether it's Argentina or, you know, I think there's many countries like that where it's just a slow meandering wrong direction. And I think it's very hard. It's hard enough. Life is beautiful, but life is hard enough as it is. And I think if you're in an environment where things are slowly getting worse and worse, it's just, it's tough. You know, I think whether you live in Russia or any of these countries, it's just a grind. My first experience with South African immigration to Australia was in the 80s when I was working in a law firm and um, I just remember talking to a lot of the young lawyers that came across to, to our firm they were from South Africa. There was a big team, quite a few of them. They had exchange control in South Africa and it was, and it was apartheid period. And it, it was very hard to – violence and all those things you're talking about, but just uncertainty, unsettled. But it was very hard to get money out or your wealth out and uh, there were all sorts of means of doing, you know, People sort of um, specialise in moving crew hands <laughs> out of the joint or, or diamonds or uh -huh. something like that. Um, but you're a more recent immigrant and um, your family and um, a lot of those options actually disappeared. And, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so you saw a lot of this stuff. I mean, you were old enough to yeah. know, well, we had this, now we don't have that. Apart from you seeing your dad as an entrepreneur, one of the things you've probably seen is your dad having this ability to hustle, hustle with your way back. Yeah. Being able to put up with shit, you know, like put up with all the things I just said at the early, at the beginning, things thrown in your way. Um, yeah. what, what could be more thrown in your way than having to get on an aeroplane after a short period of time and just take off from the country that you've been brought up in where all your assets are and where all your lifestyle is and all your friends and family and your education? What more could be thrown in front of a kid and picking them up and putting them in another country and putting them in another town like Toronto. I mean, there's not much more. You know, I, I hear you in that. Firstly, I think, I mean, I still feel very blessed. I feel blessed because I think culture ultimately kills everything, right? Like if you have the right culture at home in terms of how your parents raise you with those values, and I think you can deal with anything that's put in your way. And, and I didn't come from a war-torn country. You know, I didn't come from Syria. I didn't have to learn English and, and move from some village in China. So I think compared to a lot of people who are learning a new language or, or truly coming from like emotional, deep emotional trauma, like I didn't have any of that. I mean, it was obviously it was scary to show up in a 
random place. My mom was, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a formative time. I mean, we moved from having holiday houses and nannies to, you know, my mom was working in a flea market for a hundred dollars a day, you know, to help. And, you know, my dad was working, if it wasn't 18 hours a day, six days a week, it was 20 hours, seven days. So, I mean, they were working their butts off to give us an opportunity. And, um, but we were, you know, my, my dad was always there at dinner time, uh, no matter what. And then we'd go downstairs and, and work till midnight. Like my parents were very clear with what it meant to have good values, I think, as a family. And they were incredibly supportive. And I think when you're like, I, I just, I cannot emphasize enough how I think osmosis, like just doing what you want to do in your life and building something meaningful. I think that that rubs off in your kids and all the people around you, right? You don't have to sit there and teach people, I think, for hours at a time. If you just live those values, then I think the people around you naturally start to bend that way and, and learn what that means, right? And my dad had a, um, he moved and was in, in the, my family's in the manufacturing industry. Um, and he had a partner when he moved to Canada. And, uh, he had, it was a very difficult situation. It was a Holocaust survivor and, you know, had his own issues and, and kind of things fell apart. And I remember my dad, like month after month, kind of biding his time, knowing that he had to like, just do what was required um, in order to have the right moment so he could go and start his next business. And, you know, you, when you're kind of watching that day in and day out, month in and month out, and they're not complaining, they're, you know, up at six o'clock on a Sunday, helping me with the paper route when it's minus 35 degrees outside. And, you know, and you just kind of, you start to learn what it means to work hard, right? And, and you also learn that it pays off in the end. How much value do you put in that whole concept of having experienced what hard work actually is. I mean, we, everyone talks about it, but the experience of hard work, the ethic of hard work, and by the way, to some extent, the honor to be able to work hard. Yeah. So I think that hard work is a necessary condition typically, you know, to, to success in the long haul. You know, there's examples all over the places of people who start businesses who kind of you know, get lucky, but I think they're, they really are the 1%. I, I think for 99% of people out there, it's a long slog. You're, you're getting your face kicked in all the time. You're living with rejection. Um, if it's not a falling out, you know, with someone that you brought in or someone stealing from you or a supplier suing you, I mean, it's just, it, you know, you just have to love the fight, I think, because it, you know, it's just hard. And I would say that hard work is important, but I think that it's more of a mindset, I think, of like, being scrappy and getting on with it and not being afraid of failure and how you view rejection, I think. And I think that's actually more important because you can, you know, you can work your butt off being an accountant your whole life and never choose to get out there and give it a go. And so I think it's the latter point that's actually much more formative. And I think there's a lot of cultures out there where people are petrified to lose face or what does this mean about my family if it doesn't work, right? And I think I was very fortunate to come from an environment where it was the exact opposite of that, right? It was all right, you tried. What did you learn? Get on with it, right? Okay, well, did you do the best you could? Are you, I mean, are you a bad person? No, you did the best you could. Okay, what did you learn? And so, you know, my parents would often ask me what I learned out of something rather than, you know, moping around, right? And I, and I think the culture of like, I think it was Woody Harrelson that once said like 90% of, of, of creating a business is just, or starting anything is just showing up, right? Like most people just don't show up. <laughs> they talk about doing something. They look for it to be perfect, the perfect idea, the perfect storm. And there's no perfect storm. There's no perfect time, right? There's some industries that are better than others. And there's some teams that are better than others. But the reality is, is that it's never perfect. And the hardest part is just starting. And I think that's the, that's the kernel that I learned from my parents, I think, very early on. And from my cohort of other younger kids that I was doing it with, you know, I had friends as an example in high school, 
there were probably eight, seven or eight of us that were all part of this South African crew. And one guy started a, uh, the government changed the rules that you had to have a carbon monoxide detector in your house. So I'm going back to obviously in the nineties now, this guy started like literally going to every single university, signing up all the kids like, Mark, you can have East Toronto, you know, Jesse, you can have West Toronto. I can't pay you a salary, but you'll get 20 bucks out of the $40. I mean, we were 19, 20, right? He had hundreds of people running around the country, he made a million dollars in his summer holiday. Um, you know, I was running around selling carbon monoxide detectors. And so we were all just trying to make a buck. And I think what you learn out of that is that the hardest part is just starting, like, just get on with it, give it a go. You'll learn something, get back up. And that inertia, that, that momentum that you create, that's, I think, the, mo the most important thing. Yes, I learned what hard work means, but I got my butt kicked enough in my days of banking and other places that, you know, I, I was taught that salty lesson anyway, that you weren't going to get anywhere nine to five. But I think giving it a go and just getting on with it and showing up, that was really the most important lesson because I see so many people that have such potential just not start. Do you mean that you think overthink it? Or, or over planet? I think that it comes down to understanding how we are programmed as humans, right? Like as human beings, we are incredibly risk averse. You know, humans have been around for 70,000 years and we've had a refrigerator for 100 years and electricity for 80. And, you know, so this, this whole, this me speaking to you over, over a laptop is a very recent phenomenon. And, and we are designed as human beings psychologically to avoid getting like eaten um, by an animal, right? By a lion. And, and so we're programmed to massively over-index for risk. And so as human beings, we're not thinking about the upside. We typically are very focused on downside risk, just in terms of how we're biologically wired. And, and I think you have to be very conscious of that. So I think for most people, most people give up 10 out of 10 upside for one out of 10 downside, right? Because like we live in a first world country. I you know, I think if you come from Africa or you've spent time in any, from anywhere, from India to Argentina, if you've lived or, or spent time in developing countries, you realize we are so fortunate in Australia. I mean, you're, at the end of the day, you can survive on $30,000. I mean, you could, minimum wage is a good life here. So, you know, we live in a country where education is largely free, healthcare is free, there's minimal violence, like your downside is incredibly low. It really is. And you can always go get another job. And so I think the idea of like, I don't want to go and start something because fill in the blank. I think a lot of it's our hard wiring. And the truth is there's infinite upside, I think, to giving something a go, right? There's a future where you could have, you know, 20 or 30 locations or anything from a grocery store to a big tech company like me. You could be, you know, living in, you know, in a different country in Bali, living your dreams, like the upsides, whatever that means in your head, like the upside of what you can do is just incredible. And the downside is minimal, but people obsess about the downside, I think, inappropriately. And I, and I think that that's what catches people up. They don't properly look at upside. They just look at risk. They don't look at risk reward ratios properly. And you used an interesting word before mindset. You know, people talk about mindset all the time, but I often say mindset is about actually actually having something set out, having a structure. And you just said, and the point you just made was very important. Actually, analyze the risk versus the reward, um, the, or the value of the risk versus the reward, as opposed to just looking at the risk. Mm. Mindset is actually by, about having some mathematical structure in what it is that you're doing, and actually not overthinking. You, you should think about it, but not overthink the risk. Um, but rather quickly think about what the risk reward is. Is this something I really in love with? I really want to do it. 
Um, the re- the risk is not so bad. Just get, just fucking get on with it. Like I mean, as Nike says, just do it. I mean, there's a reason why Nike say that. Just uh-huh. do it. I mean, otherwise you won't you won't reach victory ever if you don't do it. You you got to be very careful with the role models you pick. I think, and these could be practical role models, humans in your life, or they could just be people that you read about, like Richard Branson or Bill Gates, right? But I think the people that you choose to pick as your role models have a huge influence on how you aspire to behave. You know, and so I was very lucky to have had, you know, friends who had older siblings. And, and so I spoke to a lot of them about, you know, what does this look like further down the track? I had a good friend whose dad once said to me, I was maybe 16. And he said to me, you know, there's this time period from the age of maybe 17 to 27. Maybe it's that long. It might even be 17 to 25, where if you work your butt off and you put yourself around all the best people you can, just like literally stop at nothing, 100 hours a week, just heads down. He said, if you do that, the rest of your life is going to be infinitely easier, right? And if you mess that up, like if you drop out of school or you don't go study or you're just kind of lazy and moping, you know, you're going to spend the next 30 years of your life making up for that. And, you know, I mean, I was only 16, but it kind of, it really landed with me that there was this kind of period of time where my parents were, you know, supporting me in university or high, you know, I just, I just had to show up and work hard and I could like lay the groundwork. And so I think that was like a really interesting tidbit that stuck with me. And and the consequence was that um, I went to school and, you know, worked full on as hard as I could. I ended up in banking and consulting. So um, I did M&A in New York uh, on Wall Street. And then I ended up with a company called McKinsey. And I really didn't want to work at any of those places, if I'm honest with you. And I was not very good at them either. I think I was cleanly bottom, probably for the same reasons I'm okay at being an entrepreneur or the same reasons I was cleanly bottom quartile in those companies, you know, I kept coming up with ideas and better ways to do things. And they kept telling me to go back to my financial model in the corner of the room. And so, you know, they weren't too interested. Um, But I knew that if I worked at those companies, it would put me forward in time. It would create credibility that would give me entree to being able to sit with people, you know, like yourself at a younger age, right. And, and be able to talk about what I wanted to do or raise money. And so I wanted to figure out how do I collapse the 10 year, learning experience into three or four years, even if I don't want to do it, but it's going to accelerate my ability to get there. I need to kind of get the skills. And when I was in banking, I was, I think I took like an 80% pay cut quite literally from, I could have been like promoted in the bank, so to speak, you know, at Morgan Stanley, or I could have gone to do this consulting gig, but I didn't want to be a banker anyway. And so I took this pay cut for 80% because I knew it would only be a year or two but I'd be able to be around other exceptional people, new people and learn new things. And I think when you view your career as a 50 year quantum, like you've got a long career ahead of you, right? If you're 25, right? And so if you view your career as 50 years, then, then one or two years of doing something you don't really want or taking a hit financially for a few years in that context is actually not consequential, right? And I think you do have to view things, not just in terms of what you want for the next six, six months or a year, you have to say, okay, where is like my end goal? What am I trying to do? And then how do I accelerate my way there? Even if I have to kind of, I don't say suffer in the short term, but like just suck it up, right? So they are big thoughts for a young man. Oh, I'm going to think in 50 year terms or 40 year terms, or whatever it happens to be. I'm prepared to take a pay cut when I'm in my 20s to leave banking to go to join McKinsey. They're big thoughts. Did did you originate those thoughts or did somebody, hey, say, Richard, listen, think about it like this. Um, so a bit of, a bit of yes and a bit of no, I think. So firstly, I, I found the process of reintegrating to becoming an entrepreneur from the corporate world. I actually found very confusing and hard if I'm honest with you. And the reason was that 
I think you have to be very careful with where you get your advice from, right? So there's a school of thought, which is everyone's got an opinion, everyone's equal, it all matters equally, listen to everyone. And that's lovely as a humanist, right? The practical reality is, is that what people tell you they would do if they were you would lead to where they are today. So for example, if you're at a law firm or I was at a bank or a consulting firm and I said, hey, should I go and start this parking idea or should I go to business school and you know stay in finance? 100% of the people said, you should stay in, like, what are you talking about? You should stay in finance. You should go to business school. This is what, what, like, are you a Martian? What are you talking about? And so, and for them, that's absolutely true because those are the decisions that they made. And it's also a self-supporting, reinforcing mechanism, right? You work at a law firm. Everyone wants to believe you should stay a lawyer. They don't want to believe they're doing something that's, that could be better. And so I think if you want to get advice, you have to go to people that are where you want to be. And I, and the sweet spot of the sweet spot are people that have actually made that move from you. So for example, if you work at a law firm and you've chosen to go and start your own business, find people that worked at a law firm and started their own business. Like those are the perfect people because they'll literally say to you, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is how it played out for me. I would do it again, et cetera, right? Those are perfect surrogates for what you would be like potentially five or 10 years down the track. And so uh, the people that I spoke to initially were people I worked with. And they were all like, no, you're crazy. Even though I intuitively felt this is like, this is like who I am as a human being, you know, they were not that supportive. And then when I went to other friends that, or family friends that kind of started their own business, I had a great mentor in my life. I have two great mentors in my life, you know, and, and they had started their own things. And when I went to go speak to them, there was a very different perspective. They would talk to me more in the way that we just discussed, right? Where they'd say, look, well, what's your downside? It's not like you don't have a, if you have a great experience for one year, you can still go to business school, right? If you go and start this thing and it flames out, like the bank will take you back. I mean, let's be real. In fact, they'll take you back and probably give you a raise, by the way. So, you know, when you speak to people that have, that have gone through that trajectory, I think it's very grounding, I think. But you have to be very careful with where you get advice from and who mentors you because they will give you advice that leads to typically where they are today rather than disjointing themselves from the circumstances and just looking at you as a human being. That's very rare to find people that can take themselves out of their own framework. That's interesting. And I mean, I hope that our audience listening to that who are sort of having these thoughts or having these um, dreams actually take that in because um, and I, the bottom line is if you want to end up being an entrepreneur but you're working in, um, I don't know, whatever it happens to be, look for the entrepreneur or, and better still look for someone who's in the has been in the business you're in and who has become an entrepreneur and maybe seek out their advice or at least follow them. I mean, these days too, you've got digital mediums, you can follow those digital mediums too and get inspired by those digital mediums. Mm-hmm. And even you can even DM them these days and sometimes some of these individuals will, will come back to you. A good example of that, by the way, is uh, Anthony Eisen who just sold Afterpay or they're selling Afterpay, him and his business partner along with others. Anthony, I remember Anthony many years ago, used to work worked for my brother in investment banking and then uh, he w- went off and decided to set up this idea of um, Afterpay, which is like... <laughs> Turned out to be pretty big, pretty pretty good idea, and but it's a good example. And he went with a like-minded person too, like his business partner. So who I don't know, Molnar, but they did this together. Have, are you someone who picks a partner or likes to have a partner? Um, it's such a good question. So firstly, I've had, you know, I've started three technology companies now. This is my third one. Um, I had a partner, I had a co-founder in both of my first two. One didn't work out, one did work out, and this one I'm doing alone. So I kind of looked at all three. Uh, You know, I think having a co-founder is no different than being married, I think. Meaning if you get it right, 
it is just like the most incredible thing in the world. Um, but the reality is 50% of people get divorced and or the remaining 50% half are miserable, which means that even though 100% of people <laughs> walk down the aisle saying, Mark, you and me, man, we're going to make it. We're different. You know, no one walks down the aisle saying we're not going to make it. Right. So I think, uh, and yet, you know, three out of four don't make it. And so I think it's no different. And I think that you get wiser with time. I think as you get older as well, I think you're less emotional about, you know, your role. Like my second company, I had a wonderful co-founder and, you know, when I moved to Australia, I went through a divorce. I was coming to a foreign country. You know, I had a lot of, I had one kid in diapers still. I mean, it was a very difficult time for me. And, um, I tried to commute back to New York and San Francisco. I was desperately trying to do the right thing for everyone. And, and frankly, doing a very average job for everyone. Um, and, you know, so we switched roles. He, he switched to CEO. I switched to chairman. We had an adult conversation. I gave him more of my equity. I mean, we were adults, you know, like we'd both been hit. We'd both been successful. We both like understood that it, it wasn't like emotional, right? It was just the business is a creature. A creature needs certain things in order to survive and to flourish. And I couldn't do the job I needed to. And we needed to do the right thing for everyone and for the sake of employees whose livelihoods were on the line. You know, I think as you get older, you become more mature with what it means to have a good partnership. And you recognize that, I think, as well. Um, so I think the answer is it's extremely lonely doing it yourself. I think that if you're able to find a great partner, I, I despite, you know, ups and downs of different experiences, do think it's a beautiful thing. Um, but I think there's other ways that you can engineer that same feeling. So in my company now where, um, you know, I don't have a, technically I don't have a co-founder, um, but I've, I've made sure every single person gets equity in the company, like from someone who's first year out of university in the contact center, right through to the executive team. Like, and I've gone, I think well beyond the norms to make sure people have like a lot more equity than normal. And I told my exec team, I said, I don't want to feel lonely. I don't want to feel like it's my problem. I want to feel like it's our problem and our success. And we're in it together, quite literally. And if we're successful, how much can I take to the grave with me? Like, I want you to, I genuinely want you to win. I said to them, you know, I want you to win. And so there are ways through transparency and equity sharing that you can create a very similar feeling to having a co-founder. It doesn't just have to be two of you, but uh, you have to be very careful with how you structure partnerships. And there's this great book um, called The Founder Dilemmas. I'm not sure if you've read it, um, but it's fascinating. And for any of your listeners that are thinking of starting a business with a co-founder uh, or co-founders, uh, it's a great read. It's the longest, uh, it's the largest longitudinal study ever done on um, entrepreneurship, effectively. And it looks at what's the split? Is it 50-50 or is it three ways? What are the different ways to raise money? And how does like how does this actually end up tracking thousands of startups over a decade, right? And it's it's fascinating. I haven't read it, but I've probably experienced most of the dilemmas um, and, so, and some of the upside ones too. I mean, my experience is a good partner will work. I mean, my partnership with Kerry Packer was just brilliant. Um, yeah. And the Channel 9 group was just brilliant. We couldn't have done what we did without each other, I don't think, um, I, in, in hindsight. But but then again, I've had other businesses with founder partners and um, it hasn't worked out that well. But it does come down to the personalities, I agree with you. So you sort of quickly flipped through some of the things you've done, but I do want to just underline some of the things you've done before we uh, get on to Honey. Could you just take us through the previous two startups? What were they? Yeah, so my first startup, which I founded, was called Park Assist. So that's all the green and red lights that you see that show you where to park your car when you're driving around. Um, and I started that in Sydney and I moved quite quickly to London. Uh, we ended up in about 20 countries or so. Um, so it took about 10 years to build it. We ended up shipping three products. Uh, the first one was those green and red lights. 
The second one, I literally was walking through a Tesco car park at some strange hour. And there was a guy walking around, putting every single license plate into cars. And I said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, we have to manually put in every single license plate so that people don't stay more than two hours for free because you know, otherwise no one would be able to get into Tesco. And I said, this is crazy. What if there was like a little sensor that went beep, beep, beep to the shopping trolley guy and you could just put a ticket on, you wouldn't have to walk around all day, you know? And so I, I came up with these wireless sensors, which I sold to Tesco and Sainsbury. And then eventually I started putting cameras into the um, green and red lights in order to do things like find your car and solve a bunch of problems there. Um, and so that was my first company. It took about a decade from beginning to exit and ended up in New York as head office. You know, <laughs> I learned a lot of things through that experience as you as you always do. But I think one of the things is just the education curve to building a new idea in industry is incredibly painful. Like entering an industry that already exists, be that selling mortgages or selling insurance, you know, is infinitely different than being like, hey, Mark, I've got this idea. It's a wireless sensor and you've never seen this thing before, but it's going to go beep, beep. And, and then this guy's going to get a ticket and you're not going to need the cameras. You know, it's like a lot of effort to educate people. Right. And so I think going into an existing industry and doing something better around product, price or service. Right. You just have to pick one of those three areas and just hammer it and be famous for something. I think I learned the hard way that the pain associated with trying to educate an industry on a new idea. Um, and then the second company was called Stella. So my idea this time was that, you know, when you, you think about all the people that get interviews for companies, but don't get the job, it's really a wasted asset. You just think about the hundreds of thousands of amazingly talented people that, that interview at Yellow Brick Road or that interview at Google or Atlassian and Yellow Brick Road would kill to meet some of these engineers that are pre-vetted and, and they would kill to see some of the people that, you know, maybe are in the finance industry that are applying to you. Right. And so I built the, the first, um, rerouting system across the US. There was over a million people that joined it, about 150 big companies. And we started rerouting people between companies from eBay to Citibank, et cetera. Uh, and the whole idea was, could we speed up hiring by 50%, both for people and for the companies? Uh, and that company, it didn't work in the knowledge worker space in the end, but the idea did work in the hourly space. So we kind of hit a wall, we had to raise money several times. It turns out for Woolworths or, or CBA Bank, it turns out that idea is actually a very good idea because about 25% of people that apply could go to any other company. But it turns out if you apply to work in a small retail store, you actually have no interest in working at IBM, right? So the, within the knowledge worker space, the way people think about their careers is very different. We kind of overcapitalized, we had a lot of money um, and we were struggling. And so we ended up acquiring and doing a roll-up of the larger company that should have bought us. So, you know, these things are never easy, right? So they wouldn't acquire us, this big staffing company, because they traded on lower multiples. We were a tech company and we ended up raising over a billion dollars and actually combining this like 60-person company with their 8,000 people. And my co-founder ended up running the whole business. And so it was a it was a crazy story and, and probably a... Um, a testament to the importance as well, I think, of picking a top quartile industry. Like HR is a hard industry. It's a cost center and no one wants to spend money. And so, you know, and I took a lot of technology risk too. So I think the big lesson I took out of that one is if you ain't an engineer, you probably don't want the primary risk in your business to be engineering, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to be focused on business model or sales and marketing or something where you as the founder can really solve the problem. So you're not sitting around having done what you could and then hoping the engineers deliver. And it was a very complex technical problem. You keep talking about the learnings you've got out of the various things you've done, which I think is really important. 
you said it right at the beginning, you don't sit around and go, oh, shit, that was terrible. Because if you're one of those sort of people, you'll never actually do anything else. But if you go, oh, that worked out okay because I learned this, this, and this, but now I'm going to get on with it, something else, that's fine. It's like so many people I know who are entrepreneurs, they get so caught up in and passionate about the business they're in. They love it so much, which is fantastic. It helps drive them. But when things start to go wrong, they become mortified and it sort of mm. paralyzes them. Well, how do you deal with that? And you just said you learn from it, but how do you deal with not being mortified when things aren't, when things look insurmountable? Look, I've always been far more afraid of not trying than trying. I think like deep down, um, you know, like the idea that I could get to the end of the rainbow, you know, be 70 or 80 and kind of be reflecting on my life and be like, gosh, I just didn't have the courage to give it a go, you know, or like, God, like, I wonder if I had the fight in me. Like that to me would be soul destroying. When I, I'm far more petrified that I just didn't try, that I could have been someone who contributed something um, and that it was just a failure of character, a weakness of character. And I think to me, I'm so afraid of, you know, that. I, be, I feel so like embarrassed deep down in myself. You know, my parents worked so hard to give me these opportunities. I was blessed to be in a country where really it was easy. You know, I mean, there's no, in my mind, there's no excuse, honestly, for not giving it a go, right? And, and trying to do something. So for me, I'm far more petrified of getting to the end and and reflecting on the fact that I could have done it, but it was a failure of character than the fact that I tried a bunch of times and so what? So a bunch of people tell you you're an idiot or it doesn't work and you try again and you go get a job. I mean, okay, the worst case is you're back to square one. You have to frame the risk reward, right? Like what does this look like in the end? And, and are you okay with that, right? Are you okay with with the fact that you think you could have had a better life or you could have had a more fulfilled career? Um, every day, right? Which one's more scary to you? That, that you squandered that or the fact that a bunch of people you don't know told you to pack up your toys and go home. You have to look at both upside and downside. And so for me, I'm petrified of the downside far more than I'm, I'm eight out of 10 afraid of the upside and I'm 10 out of 10 afraid of the downside. And so, you know, so you just get back up again. You're like, God, I don't want to be there, you know? We're going to go to the break and I'm going to come back because I want to talk about yeah. honey. I actually want to talk about from the time you conceived it to now, I mean, what's that? What are the pain points? How did you keep going? Um, I, I do want to talk to you about how how you raise money because you know insurance company needs money. You know, what are the things you do to help you endure these hurdles, these problems that are pushed in front of us all the time, which is a big deal today? So let's go to the break. We'll come straight back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah that plush and the best part for every item you purchase bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. (laughs) 
back with Richard Joff and his business, we're going to talk about his business called Honey Insurance, which is sort of just launching around this this time in, in a more formal sense. Richard, why was it you decided to have a go at insurance? Because, you know, it's, some people might say it's a crowded market, it's a big sell, um, it's a grudge purchase to some, although it defensively can work really well in your favour. Where did that sort of inspiration come from for, for insurance? You know, for me, I think like the big thing that motivates me is inefficiency, like just in general. And all of the companies I've started and all the things I've done have really been around, like inefficiency drives me insane, quite literally, like an itch that won't go away, you know? And when you're standing in a lineup and there's four people in the back at at the restaurant and one person won't come to the till to help with with the lineup, it drives me nuts. When you kind of do telemedicine properly, like why am I going to the doctor waiting two hours to wait to see the doctor when he wants to speak to me (laughs) over iPhone and I want to speak to my over iPhone. Like it just, it makes no sense. And so, you know, park assist was an inefficiency, right? Like finding a parking space is just a pain in the butt. And the idea that you came second at an interview at a bank and no one ever talked to you again, where you should be rewarded for that. These are all like inefficiencies. It's not the way the world should work. And so I I love trying to find uh, an inefficiency as a customer, as a human, right? And then trying to figure out how to solve that. So for me, um, I looked at a whole bunch of problems that had inefficiencies in them. Um, and there were different thematics. I think logistics is a really interesting space. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of really interesting things going on with remote work, for example, as well. And, and the WeWorks I was looking at. I learned to my first companies that I wanted to do something that was that was isolated to execution risk, that didn't have a lot of technology risk and didn't have a lot of business model risk. And what was interesting about insurance is that it's like yet another Australian oligopoly. Right. So four companies control 70 odd, 80 percent of home insurance. There's no information. There's no kind of innovation out there. And they have innovators dilemma. Right. Like it's it makes no sense for them to innovate because it would be cannibalistic to their existing customer base. Like the average home insurance customer in Australia is paying a 27 percent loyalty tax, meaning if you literally call back your insurance company and said, hey, what would it cost for home insurance? They'd give you a 27 percent discount or they should. Right. And so these companies are surviving really off people being, you know, not having the inertia to cancel their policy, which they can do anytime and shop around, right? And so you look at that type of industry where, you know, going into it, you could do something very innovative. It's an existing growing industry. And it's also at the point in the curve where you can use some type of, a, you have to find a wedge in, right? So there's new technology and services that would actually add value for people. Anytime you're entering a big industry, You have to find some angle. So there has to be something that you can do that's meaningfully different to at least a small cohort of people that are going to champion you, right? They're going to tolerate all the issues you have in the early stages of your business because you're doing that one thing better. And so for home insurance, there's no one who's actually investing into home insurance customers up front to reduce risk in their lives, right? And that's really the future. The future of insurance should be alignment. When you think about it, insurance companies today benefit whether they like it or not, with bad things happening to you, right? So if you get into a car accident, your premium, you know, typically goes up, right? A big storm happens, prices go up. Like bad things lead to higher revenue. And if you think about it, about 50% of accidents that happen in a house are completely avoidable, right? You like leave on your um, shower and you go off and, you, you know, you forget about it. Or your fire alarm goes off while you're at the movies and you didn't know about it. So Many of the things that happen about half are avoidable. So, you know, the the concept that we eventually cooked up was, is there a way you can give away technology and services to actually reduce risk in people's lives, in their homes, and then give them the discount, pass it on. And, And if you think about other industries like healthcare, 
for example, or health insurance, if you hit the gym five times a week, there's companies in the US that will give you a, diff- a discount. They'll say, Mark, congrats, you're hitting the gym five times a week, you're healthier than you were a year ago. Of course, you should pay less, like you should be rewarded for that. That doesn't exist in home insurance in Australia. And so the space we landed on is, can we take some of these kernels from different industries and enter a big industry that's growing, that's really owned by these four guys? And can you find a wedge in with like early stage millennials, people that really like technology and services and that kind of understand that messaging, right? But that was kind of the early wedge in for Honey Insurance. Okay, so what is Honey Insurance's product? So Honey Insurance is home contents and landlord's insurance which you know, is mandatory. If you own a house, it's mandatory to get a mortgage, as, as you of all people know. So about 94% of Australians that have a house have home and contents insurance. And the whole idea is that we give out about $500 of free technology and services to people that sign up in order to reduce risk in their lives. And then we literally give them the savings. So you sign up for Honey Insurance. We use smart data to cut down the time to buy it by like two thirds. So we plug in satellite footage and we plug in data from a whole bunch of local sources and municipalities. So it's way easier to buy it and understand it. Um, And then we ship you $250 of sensors for free that can detect smoke alarms and water leaks and movement in your house. And if you choose to put it in, you get an 8% discount per year, which is what we view as like the reduction in risk in your life. And so the message is, hey, Mark, Honey Insurance is a great product anyway. um, And we're going to give you a whole bunch of, you know, free technology and services to keep you and your family safe. And if you choose to put it in, you know, you'll save about a hundred bucks yeah, just in the sensors. And then every year we'll be releasing other tech and services to help people. So it's meant to be the first proactive insurance company in Australia that actually tries to get ahead of things for you rather than you waiting for something bad to happen. It's interesting you're using sensors, which is your first uh, tech business, but um, what, right. what sort of sensors are we talking about? Yeah, so there's three, um, there three little sensors. Each sensor does the same thing. It can detect if there's changes in humidity or water. So you can put one underneath your sink, for example. So you have there's something called flexi hoses there, which is the number one cause of damage in Australia to homes. So if those flexi hoses start to leak, because they only have about a 10-year um, life, then you'll be notified. You can get it changed out. You can put another one typically anywhere in your living room where a smoke smoke alarm is. If that smoke alarm goes off, you get notified. So if you're out on holiday or in the movies or at your kid's soccer and the fire alarm goes off while you're not in the house, you know it's, it's happening. And then the third one can detect motion. So if your front door opens up or there's someone walking around your house when you're not at home, uh, you'd be notified as well. So the, right. those, are the, those are the three primary risks. So about, about 50% of bad things that can happen to you in your house or your house uh, are forces of nature, right? Bushfires, floods, you know, the forces of God, right? We're not going to solve that problem. But about 50% are controllable. There are things that are happening that really technology and services and better awareness could get rid of. And, you know, it causes, you know, lots of deaths, um, huge amounts of suffering. I mean, in Australia, one in, so one in seven claims last year were rejected. So about 185,000 Australians who have home insurance were rejected last year in their claims and had to pay about one and a half billion out of pocket. So it's a, it's a real issue that affects a lot of people. Um, and it's an industry that really is quite broken, candidly, right? And so you send these sensors out and I install the sensors. And as a result of that, you know, statistically and algorithmically, um, Honey can sort of say, well, the risk of any one of those uh, damaging events occurring is reduced. The insight here is, is that if you think about it, we we actually benefit selfishly as a company if you win as well as a customer, right? So if 
risk goes down for you, we pay out less, right? So we don't want something bad to happen to you. Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now we've reached a point in the technology curve. If you think about Uber and services and you know telemonitoring and even smart sensors, the cost of this technology has plummeted, right? Like in March, we'll be including uh, the equivalent of like a, a doorbell camera, right? Like a ring doorbell camera equivalent. This equipment used to cost three, four hundred dollars. It's plummeted down to you know fifties and, and eighties in terms of build build costs in China now. So, um, so we can actually give out that technology, and it's not that expensive relative to the cost savings, right? If it costs us three thousand dollars to give you that equipment, and we saved a thousand dollars in average damages for you over the course of five years, it makes no sense. But if it costs five hundred dollars that we're giving it to you, and it saves a thousand dollars. In potential costs to your house over the next five years, we should do that all day long. You're a happier customer, your family safer, and we're actually in the money. There's obviously software that had to be built. There's hardware that had to be developed and or at least um, fine-tuned to do the things that you want to do. It exists in the world, but you had to you have to go and get, get this hardware and make sure as there's a continual supply, you have to find the person who's going to supply it to you. I mean, it's not that's not that easy. Um, that takes time and effort and money. How, how do you go about that? I mean, how do you go and find your engineers and your developers? Um, well, firstly, I think the order, you have to choreograph starting a company in the right order, right? So there's a cascading number of things you have to do. And if you do them in the right order, it just makes getting a business off the ground infinitely easier. I mean, at least a technology company is all I can speak to. You know, so the first thing is I'm passionate about co-creating companies with customers. I would never, ever, ever start a company if the customers didn't invest or put down a purchase order. It's like an emphatic philosophy I have. And the reason for that is it's the smartest money. Not all money is equal, right? So... If my, in the first company I started, the parking company, we had someone who ran a parking company and we had somebody who uh, ran a shopping mall company who invested. Why? Because they would literally say to me, like, if things weren't working, they'd say, you know, Mark, we would, but we'd only pay half the price. And, and 11 people have called us in the last four months and they've offered us slightly better technology. And this is why. But let me tell you, this is actually what I would want you to do. OK, this is the problem that I'm facing in my company right now, that if you solved it, I'd line up to give you money. Okay? And so as soon as you have your customers invest, it's true validation of your idea, right? Like the fact that me and Mark and my friends think it's a good idea is really completely irrelevant because we're not paying for it. The only person that really matters is the customer. And so I think the starting point of any company has to be find a customer who's willing to put their butt on the line. That means like someone has to get fired or suffer if this doesn't work. Like that's the highest threshold, right? You know, my second company, I had Seek invested with seven recruiting companies, uh, which is a, obviously an HR company. And so for Honey Insurance, the two big problems I, have to sol- I had to solve were one, we needed an underwriter who would actually support us in the market. So who would give us balance sheet and insurance infrastructure, you know, getting APRA approved is three years. So we needed someone to partner with us there. And then the second thing is we needed people that would sell Honey Insurance because if all we were going to do was advertise on buses, you know, how could you possibly raise enough money to do that? You'd be dead. And so I had to con- convince an underwriter to do it. And so we eventually it took 18 months and 92 rejections, which we can come to, but we eventually got to the end of the rainbow and they invested. And so I think the starting point is getting your customers to actually partner and invest with you. Once that's done, then you have to get credibility. So in my last company, I had an amazing guy um, who understood the industry. And I gave him, you know, a piece of the business up front to be chairman. And he was able to open doors and help with recruiting. He helped to pull an advisory board together. So you got to get your customers first, 
then you know you need to kind of establish credibility and it's better to share the pie and make sure you have a pie in the end than be a tight ass and like hope for the best and not get there like there's so much risk in getting a business off the ground that getting the smartest people you can around the table is far more important to success i think than trying to control the whole pie right which inevitably if you just look at the data is not a good outcome typically right and so it's so hard to make it work just make it work then you can go and raise the capital and then you go and engineer the team. And the message to the team, to your point, was very much, you've got a safe job. I don't expect you to go and leave tomorrow. If I raise this amount of money for this idea, would you leave your job, right? And so you don't have to get everyone to take risk up front. You're the only one who has to kind of absorb that, right? You can say to the team, I mean, if you love it and you want to all work together, do some nights, do some weekends, we'll get there. Uh, but I'm the one who's going to take the risk. And if we get there, fine, then you quit your job at Google, right? But you don't have to do that tomorrow. And I think it's much easier to build a world-class team if you can lay out that trajectory for people where they understand where they're to kind of minimize and contain their risk, especially if they're not the founder. How do you go about finding, say, tapping someone on the shoulder from Google, for argument's sake, to come and work for you at night or weekends? Or I mean, how do you find these people? So really through multiple sources, I think the, the best way to find people is through your personal networks, um, which makes up typically about a third of hiring in my companies and, and I think statistically as well. Uh, but the good news is it's arm's reach. Your friends are not going to recommend someone that's, you know, not strong, but it's very finite. There's limited reach there. There's limited scale, but that's the first place you always go is your existing networks or referrals, right? And I offer typically three to $5,000 for someone who gives a referral. So you incentivize people. I mean, a recruiter is going to cost you 15 grand. There's no purpose in you not paying three to $5,000 to someone to make a suggestion and open a door. It's irrational. Mm. And so the first place I go is through my personal networks and I pay up, which is still a third of what it would cost the hard way, right? Uh, the second place you go is, are people that are within your second sphere. So these are people that are advisors, mentors, um, you know, potential investors that can open doors. And the third way is you grind it out. You know, we were looking for a product, another product person. Um, last week, I was literally emailing people on LinkedIn on Saturday night until two in the morning without exaggeration. So I think, you know, part of it is just a numbers game. If you email 150 people, um, you know, 20 of them will be interested. If 10 of them aren't, you tell them about the three to $5,000. And then every single, and I err on the side of speaking to more people than not. Because, you know, I think early stage success has a lot to do with serendipity. It has a lot to do with the right place, right time. And if you just stumble around enough, you'll eventually get lucky. And so I think when it comes to talent, you know, I tend to take more meetings than not. And I, whenever I meet someone, I always say to them, who are the top two people that you'd recommend? If I speak to an investor who doesn't want to invest, I say, are oh, the two people you know that would be a great fit for this? And so you start to create growth instead of limiting your networks you start to accelerate, you know, hiring. I get it. That all makes sense because, I mean, I did, you did come and see me some years ago and uh, one of the things I've noticed about you is you always stay in contact. You actually did ask me those two questions. Do I know any other any other people that I that I could refer you to? Um, and but, but not only did you stay in contact, but you sort of, you kept in front of me, so to speak, so in front of my mind. So then, I, then I'm always asking this, this question: I wonder how's this business going, and it makes it keeps me interested. And then if I'm talking to somebody else, I might actually make make some reference to you about it as well. So that is how startups go, and that's actually how businesses run. That's how, and I think there's a misconception out there that people like you, a founder, 
um, that everything just falls into your lap and it all happens. It doesn't. You have to make it fall in your lap. And what you're saying here, Richard, is that you are putting yourself out there all the time, continually. You don't stop. And that's what a founder's got to be prepared to do. Otherwise, just get out of the room. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, when I started this, um, you know, as you said, I've done two already, right? And I had, I actually have a list of the 92 people that I met with, not even spoke to, I met in person 92 people who weren't interested, right? Who passed it up. And that included venture capital funds, friends, people that were, it was completely rational for the businesses to do this. Um, and all of them will be receiving my quarterly update, by the way. And so all, all 92, and then you get to the end of the rainbow, you're like, oh my gosh, do you give up? As you said, right? I think you have to ultimately you have to believe that what you're doing makes sense. You know, you have to start with, is what I'm doing, does this fundamentally make sense? Should this be out there? Should this business be out there? Is there a problem I'm, I'm trying to fix that makes sense? And if the answer is yes, then you can engineer all of the necessary conditions, right? Someone will give you the money. Somebody will join you and help build it. You might just need to speak to hundreds, but they're out there. But you have to ultimately believe that what you're doing makes sense. And that's why you have to be in an industry and work with people you want to work with because it's just too hot otherwise, <laughs> right? If you don't want to be in that industry or go after that problem, you'll quit. It's just too hard. You can't do it just for money. You have to do it because you really believe this is like, it's an important thing you want customers to have, right? I mean, all these things mm -hmm. are great, but they'll require a fair bit of capital. You may want to dip into your own savings and, you know, use your own money. But at some stage, you know, you're talking about an insurance company here. Um, you know, that's, that's, that requires a lot of capital. And you did mention you got underwriters, et cetera. They're the people you sort of um, lay your risk off to. I mean, I'm not talking about that capital. I'm talking about just capital to build a business and, and to run the business. That's a hard road. What are the lessons you learned in Australia about raising capital for a big idea like this? To take on, as you say, the like four giants who control 70% of the market. Um. I think that the lesson of fundraising is similar to the lesson of how you get someone to quit Google and join you when you have nothing going for you. And I think it comes down to a very clear focus on being able to quantify the upside and articulate that to people. What do I mean by that? People know exactly what it means to, to quit their job at Google, right? And people know exactly what it means to give me a check of a million dollars and not get it back. So the downside is very clear. That's very, it doesn't require any imagination, right? The problem is that most people don't understand the upside. And I think the reason that most people are not able to convince a person at Google to quit their job any more than they're able to convince someone to put in a million dollars or whatever the amount is, right? Is because they don't do a good job at articulating exactly how the upside will come to be. So what I mean by that, right? If you're able to say, look, we need X hundred thousand customers, those hundred thousand, these are examples of companies and what they're valued at. So these are five or 10 examples of companies that are now public, or these are five or 10 examples of companies that are very profitable, et cetera, et cetera, right? In five years time. And this is how we're going to do it. If you put in this money, you can automatically guarantee me a certain number of customers. Why? Because you're a customer, right? And so if you can paint the bridge of this is how we get to first base, we get to first base by having 5,000 customers and that's only focused in Sydney, and that's through these four diff different distribution channels. And by the way, you're one of my customers. So the only way that this company doesn't get to first base is that you and the other three don't do what you were doing anyway, what you've just told me, right? This company is almost guaranteed to be successful if you just deliver on what you said. And so I think when you fuse your customers in, and then you explain to them how by definition of their ability to sell, 
you're automatically going to get there. For example, let's say you want to go and launch a new vitamin chain, okay, a brand. If you got pharmacies to invest, chemist warehouse, whatever, you could literally say to them, look, if you did nothing more than put my vitamins on your shelves, you'd be 30% of my revenue, right? So you're almost guaranteed to be halfway there just by definition of you being involved. And so I think that there's an amazing arbitrage by working with customers when it comes to raising money. And a similar thing happens to, to bringing on new employees, by the way, where you go, I'm not giving you 1% of the business. Let me explain to you how that 1% could be worth X million dollars so that when you take a hit, when you go from $200,000 a year down to 100, this is why this could really be worth two, three, four, five million dollars, right? And I think people don't do it. I learned that in Silicon Valley, which is you have to be very clear with people about what the upside is and how you're going to get there. Because they know exactly what the downside is. And if you leave it to their imagination as either an investor or as, an, as someone who's going to join, you, you nearly never get there. People don't really know what it means. And so I, I was very clear with investors about not just what the risks were, but I was clear with how it was an arbitrage. That if you had enough in customers invest, we almost guaranteed were going to be successful and profitable because they themselves controlled the revenue line. Clear and consistent and um, regular communication to your investors of what the upside is, is the key to raising money from investors. Hit everybody, we don't expect to be successful with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one, one interesting thing that you often hear, I think, from a lot of smart or sophisticated investors, or actually in general from investors is, I'm rich, I'm smart, I'm successful. I run the big company. You're nothing. Give me a discount. Like you hear some variation of no, 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 like half price, right? And whenever you go to investors. And I think the answer there is no problem. Um, You're a customer. So let's come up with what you say you're going to deliver. And you can have it for half price if you deliver, right? And so one thing I've done on numerous occasions is said to the customers, no problem. Let's say we're going to raise a million dollars, okay? And let's say that we're going to go and start a bakery chain, um, and the customer, the people that I've gone to for the investment are real estate developers. And I've said to them, look, we want a whole bunch of locations around Sydney. We're going to scale the business. Why don't you put up the capital and give me a discount on the properties and, you know, we can build this thing together. Right. And it, there's a whole bunch of value. You'll see other people knocking at your door. You'll be able to see other businesses that are working. There's a great synergy between us. Okay. They may turn around and go, look, that's, that's great, but we're adding all this value. Who are you? And you go, no problem. I'll tell you what. If the business hits X, Y, or Z, you'll double your equity, right? Or if you can do X, Y, or Z or value, I'll double your equity. So I think by linking to create alignment with investors, I think a common thematic from investors is my money is greener than the other money. I want a discount, right? Or you don't have enough going for you. And I think the answer always is, okay, well, let's come up with something where it's a win-win. I'm so glad you've uh, you've launched. Uh, I'm so glad that you raised all the money and you got all the partners, invested dash partners, that you that you're talking about and the big names as well. Um, I I know it's been a long period. It's been a grind out. <laughs> it's, it's just a grind. Um, and by the way, you've had everything thrown at you, everything possible thrown at you. I mean, like my God, we've had two lots of COVID periods as well thrown at you. And and, and it was right in the middle of the uh, uh, the Hain Royal Commission and insurance is being looked at, insurance brokers and the whole thing. It was a big deal. Well done. Congratulations, mate. Like you're seriously Thanks, Mark. A, a big effort. When I first met you, I, I knew 
the energy that you brought into my room um, in um, Chifley that day was uh, quite incredible, I must say. I mean, I, I thought to myself, this guy, you'll make it um, no matter what. But I also knew you were going to be up against it for a period of time, but um, only just because it's just hard to raise money in this country. But people in this country take a lot of convincing. A lot easier in the US, for example. I'm not sure about Canada, but a lot easier in the US. Um, maybe there's more uh, there's there's more people with money perhaps. But um, I think I want to finish this off, Richard, by saying that one of the things I get out of today, a, a really deep feeling I get out of this today is um, you have to learn about what your audience wants, whoever your audience is, very, very quickly and start to parlay the information to them or the data or the outcomes to them clearly, concisely, you have to be able to read the tea leaves. And um, one of the things I got from you today, Rich, is you read the tea leaves very, very fast. You don't know my audience, but you worked out very, very quickly what my audience needed to hear, not in a technical sense about honey insurance because there's a whole lot of technical stuff that would apply to that, but what the, my audience wanted to hear about how a startup operates and the sorts of things and the sorts of mindsets and thought processes and execution processes that someone like you undertake. So uh, you got to try and learn how to do that. That's how you run big companies. You've got to have that insight and that ability. So, Richard Joff, thanks very much. Good luck with Hunt Insurance, mate. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.